Well, hello, 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 and welcome along to another episode of News Hub Post Credits, an entertainment podcast coming to you from all the way inside the News Hub newsroom. The little bunker. The little bunker, <laughs> the radio studio that we repurpose for our own nefarious ends. I'm here mm. with Mr. Jordan Tenney, Mr. Zeno J himself. Jordan, how are you? I'm feeling good. It's it's unfortunate that our bunker hasn't become the, you know, the villain's lair that we were hoping it would be. Oh, it's going to get there. It's going to get there. We're both sitting here drinking wine at midday, so that's pretty villainous. <laughs> Look, it's 2020, guys. We're going to get through this anyway. Yeah. And speaking of 2020, you just exercised your democratic right to vote. I did. Democracy, well right? Well done. You're joining one of the mm. over 200,000 Kiwis that have done that. If you're listening to this and you haven't voted, pause the podcast, go vote, and then you can listen. Yeah. This is then a, you're allowed to listen. Because yeah, yeah. we know. We know. Yeah. We know. The one thing we have in our villain's lair is like tracking devices. Yeah, we've got a democracy For people tracker. exercising yeah. their democratic right. It's a very specific kind of supervillain <laughs> that we've built ourselves up to be. Yeah. We don't want to dominate the world. We mm. just want to make sure that whoever does yeah. dominate the world got their democratic yeah. right. We need, uh, that's right. You, we need to speak with Jeff about that. So yeah, yeah, Jeff yeah, Bezos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or Kuckerberg or Bill Gates. But yeah. anyway, before we start getting completely off the rails two minutes into the podcast, Jordan Tenney, there's been mm. quite a lot of news in the week that we'll unpack before we get into a couple of reviews in the back half of the show. The Unfortunately, it's been a running theme with 2020, and it's definitely continued. Yeah. We kind of thought after Tenet, well, uh, a lot of hopes were pinned on Tenet as the White Knight of Cinema. We've talked a lot on the podcast that Christopher Nolan was going to ride in on horseback with his big stallion, Tenet, yeah, and his bat pod. His bat and say, yeah, and save cinema. And since then, Tenet's released a fairly mixed reviews, and we got the news over the last couple of weeks that Bond has been moved to next year. Mm. June June will no longer make its December. That, that is confirmed, right? June is not June is yet. next year. June yep. is next year as well. And our pets, Batman, after that tantalizing, beautiful trailer, pushed to 2020. Yeah. But they also got COVID on set. They got, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, so the, to clarify, the difference with our pet and the reason it's gone so far is because he himself got coronavirus. Oh, he got, oh okay. Yeah, Robert Pattinson did oh, coronavirus. So, oh, Edward yes. Cullen can't protect you now. Yes, exactly. So I guess I just wanted to have a little chat at the top of the show about what do we think this means? Because I think the narrative has shifted from. We're going to miss one release slate. We're going to have one traditional season without big blockbusters. But now the discussion seems to be shifting to, will we ever go back to the new normal? Is this Mm. a blip or is this going to really fundamentally shift the way large production houses and large studios spend their money? Because I think Tenet didn't, it didn't not only save cinema, it didn't perform as well as anyone was expecting, even mm. if you take away the coronavirus pandemic, yeah. released a very decidedly mixed reviews, has gained, I think its overall box office is approaching 500 mil, which is an absurd amount of money, yeah. but not as much money as it needed to make when and these are budgets yeah. of over 200 mil American. And so I just wonder what your thoughts are on has your optimism around the future of cinema changed at all or mm. are you kind of starting <laughs> to get a bit of the fear inside? That's exactly what I was going to start with. You know, I was going to say I'm back on my shit. Just start with a positive note because I, I think it's commendable that Warner Brothers are actually investing so heavily in ensuring that their their cinematic releases actually go to cinema. Um, you know, at, at this stage, Wonder Woman is still releasing to cinema. Uh, there was another Warner Brothers film that was just announced that I believe is releasing in the next six months. So it's really impressive that Warner are actually, um, and of course, Roadshow, because they're one in the same, are trying to save cinema, but it, it is the anxiety-riddled headline, is it? it? You know, is the blockbuster over? I don't think the blockbuster is over. I think people 
are just so anxious they don't want to go outside. I'm very much the same. I had tickets to Tenant. And I was just like, I don't want to go outside. Mm. Like, I, I could have sat in an IMAX theater to myself. Yeah. And I just, I was like, nah, I don't see this as an important enough reason to go outside currently. Mm. Um, so I still gave it money, which, you know, kind of justifies my, my declining seeing it. But I, I think that's it. I think people just want to feel safe about the cinematic experience. And I think Kate says it really well, is you can't replace what the cinema experience is like. And you can emulate it as much as you want at home. But unless you're like a millionaire who can, you know, buy it, a crazy sized movie cinema that you put in your basement in your house. You can't really emulate that experience. You can't get those things back where that, like I think people miss audience members pissing them off. Mm. Cause like that's one of your funniest things from a movie. You could have, I can say yeah. concretely that I don't. Miss them, <laughs> sure. I imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, you think of stories with friends, right? And if you think of a movie, the only reason they end up remembering a movie is because they remember that one person that's like, did something stupid during the film or, or they cried or they were too loud. Um, I, I know what you mean. Mm. I, I, for, for me, I think the thing that I've missed that I didn't realise I would miss is being with strangers in a cinema because I, I'm one of those people that kind of get a little bit irked by other people in the cinema if they're, yeah, not, they're not having proper cinema etiquette or they're talking <laughs> on anything like that. I don't think we all get pissed off by that. But... The thing that I didn't realize I was going to miss was being part of a crowd responding to something. Yeah. Like, uh, for example, in game, you know, Cat picks up the hammer. Just this this, this mm. wave of excitement that yeah. just spread that you just feel part you feel part of something together with strangers, mm. and that you really cannot replace. And I think that's true. A quiet of, place, I think, true, is a great example. Quiet place, yeah, yeah exactly. Though, yeah, being in a horror film, that's that's really mm. hitting it. Just feeling art hit a crowd you really can't replace that and it, yeah. it ties you into the experience so much more so yeah I I mean I don't think anyone was on the other side of the f- well I think actually a, a few pundits were saying this is just going to accelerate I've probably said it on this podcast and if so feel free to call me out on Twitter that this is going to accelerate the decline of cinema and this is going to yeah. be the end of cinemas or Mulan uh, is proving that. Yes, yeah. I mean Mulan is not. It's not working as well. I mean, it yeah. doesn't, they're not releasing any numbers on this, but mm. I imagine that's. Oh no! Apparently, it's in four hundred million. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see. Apparently, I didn't it's done this. really well. Oh, okay. Well, then I, so, I, yeah. I eat my words completely. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I do think that yes, ideas around the death of the blockbuster are overstated, mm. but death of cinema chains is, in, is inevitable. True. That's the one thing that I think we can say for sure with these kind of delays is that there were a lot yeah. of cinema chains, particularly in America, uh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if here as well, that we're really depending on this. We're holding out hope for June. We're holding out hope for Tenet first, then mm. holding out hope for June, holding out hope for Wonder Woman, and now we just don't have those releases. And so that's that's the really tough reality that are a lot of people... Do you think like the mom and pop, like the indie cinemas, are going to be the ones most affected? Yes, I think so. But I think there's also a reverse side to that coin of, I think there might be some mom and pop uh, cinema chains which might be able to survive in a way that the yeah. large chains can't because they depend on a certain amount of traffic. But there might be that small pool of cinema goers who are willing to go out 
mm. and the the niche cinemas that have tiny uh, you know tiny yeah. seat seat sizes overall end up playing some of those weird uh, marathons or some of those or, or some of those throwbacks. So the like, like the, the room, yeah. like, like, like the Avondales that we have here. Mm. I really hope will come out of this a little bit. Maybe maybe not stronger, but might be able to weather the storm a bit better than the large. Yeah, chains. figure out some some things to save themselves. Yeah. Whereas like chains are kind of bound by franchises. They're bound by exactly whatnot, a chain so. is bound by a franchise in a way that a niche cinema is not. So that's mm. the only and it's a bleak silver lining. But I hope that some of those smaller chains do find a way to go uh, to survive through this because if, if you're listening and you are able. And you're not afraid of it? Please go out and go to yeah, the cinema. But go if you know, absolutely, you know, no, no, no. Also, be here. anxiety riddled like me. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but just yeah, be anxiety riddled. But this for this next half hour, you can have an anxiety free mm. zone with Finn and Jordan. With um, with that, so because it's it's interesting with with regards to cinema and how how the big brands are reacting to it. Um, of course, with we've had the announcement from Disney that uh, the next Pixar film, Soul. Is now releasing exclusively on Disney Plus on Christmas Day, mm. so I'm I'm wondering. I, I think that's why a lot of um, brand like franchises, cinemas are, are pissed off with Disney because Disney are really think, starting to I get think, behind that. I think Disney particularly are able to do this because I don't, I can't imagine a fair because the, the the value proposition mm. of buying a, a premium tier on Disney Plus really yeah. makes sense when you're a family. If you're buying a pass to this and you're like, okay, I've got three kids that I need to mm. take to this. I getting them all a ticket. Forty dollars. Forty dollars. Getting That's them it. to the cinema yeah. is a hassle in and of itself. If you get told, "Oh my God, I can have the experience of taking my kids to the cinema in fr- on my couch with yeah. all taking away all the hassle my of Uber getting eats. them in the car, of getting them, <laughs> getting them the popcorn, yeah. wrangling them into a cinema, keeping them quiet, making sure they're behaving." If you can take away all that hassle, that's worth it. On top of the the fact that it's equally yeah. probably less expensive to do it from home, and I also think that kids are not going to complain. That's like, no. Mm, no, I need this in 4K and laser. I need this at IMAX. <laughs> where is my Dolby 5.1? Thank you. Yeah, mother. where's my Dolby 5.1? Thank you, mother. Exactly. I'm a little prince boy who needs this yeah. Dolby. Yeah. And so I do think I can understand how Disney are leaning on this because it makes sense. Whereas mm. the, the the larger blockbusters in the more traditional sense can't really. So yeah, I, yeah. I I do think Disney, as Disney does, they will turn a profit from this, no, whatever happens. Yeah. Uh, but no, overall, I do think I've become somewhat more cynical about the future of the blockbuster uh, over the last couple of weeks, as everyone seems to. But I don't. Th- I think any there is an idea of a plague of endism whenever large events happen. Mm. People, it's very easy to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. This is it. This is the end of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and I, don't, I think that's a tendency we've got to push against. I think things will change. Yeah. Things will things will scale down. But we will eventually return to the heady old days. But one thing I did want to touch on. Speaking of mm. Disney, uh, Marvel. We had this is the if I'm correct, this is the first year we have not had a tentpole Marvel release. No Marvel release. Black Widow got shifted out. So, so I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think this is going to impact them at all? Or do you think in some ways? This is actually the kind of creative breathe and audience breathing room that might do them well in the long run, whereas it takes away from that sense of Marvel saturation. I th- oh, this is such a bonus for them. Like, I think this was unintentional. Like, of course, everything COVID No, they was. spread COVID. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Let's be honest. Would yeah. we not be surprised by that? <laughs> but, it, you know, I, I think... Their plan was always to keep hitting the market with Marvel films, and you know Scorsese is is probably the the person to go to when you, when you think about how the MCU has affected cinema. If you had asked me at the at the start of the year if I could have gone a year without Marvel, I probably would have gone. 
I'll be all right with it. But I'd, I'd like to continue watching Marvel. But now that it's happened, I'm kind of like, you know what? It's great that we're actually having a break from it. Uh, it gives them time to maybe figure out how they're going to approach what their next storyline is. Because that's what a lot of people don't realize is is in-game, in-game like they finish perfectly. They could just leave Marvel right now and that would be it. But they want to keep making money. So they're in a position now where they have time to reset everything in such a way that they could probably make another decade of films. And and all it's given is Feige so much time to figure out how to put every and and we see that happening. We see like all these TV shows being created. Uh, we're seeing all these spin-offs happening, and of course, the thing you're bringing up is the massive Spider-Man three announcement. Mm. So the yeah, I mean, that, and that's yeah. We'll we'll talk on that for anyone who hasn't heard. Could you talk a little bit about what we do know about Spider-Man three uh, now? So so far, there was an early leak that Jamie Fox, for some reason, was going to be involved with it. So Jamie Fox played Electro in the. The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which was the Andrew Garfield film. And everyone was thinking, oh, are they just giving him another run at the character? What is this? What's happening? And it was just announced yesterday that Doctor Strange is now joining Spider-Man 3. And we know with Doctor Strange comes magic. Uh, and it it seems all but confirmed that Into the Spider-Verse is jumping into live action. And that is something that I am exceptionally excited mm. about because I, I think we have discussed on the podcast before, Into the Spider-Verse was one of my favourite cinema experiences yeah. of, of the last five what years. A film. What a film. What a, what, a, what a film that pushed the creativity of its genre. What, mm. As a film that I really hoped elevated the genre, and that sounds a little bit douchey, but I do think it, that's no, the case. That's what it did. And I think, it, and I think that we're seeing the results of that. I think everyone saw Into the Spider-Verse and went, oh my God, mm. we need to do more of that. And now you see Miles. Yeah. Miles is getting his own Spider-Man game. You see Spider-Man 3 essentially confirming now that we're going to have multiple Spider-Men in Spider-Man yeah. 3. So Tobey Maguire, it's not confirmed yet, but it seems all but confirmed. Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield will at Must least... Back in some way. At least be having yeah. cameo appearances because if Jamie Foxx is coming in as Electro, that means Andrew Garfield's Spider Man yeah. will have to be on screen with him without it not making any sense at all. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, and the the connection seems to be now that Doctor Strange is confirmed to be in it, the next Doctor Strange film will be Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of yeah. Madness. So what it seems to that Marvel's doing is using Doctor Strange as a leaping off point to break open the MCU into, yeah. into splintered dimensions. Because that is the, the, the power of comics uh, well, in terms of the narrative draw that they've got, or the narrative well that they can draw from, I should say, <laughs> is that you've got a million versions of every character yeah. across alternate no timelines. No one's ever dead. No one's ever dead and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So MCU want to get in on that action. And they already sort of have with yeah. the Infinity Stones. Yeah. But now they want to bust that open so that they can include any character or any version of any character mm. from alternate timelines so now that we I think we're going to have you know Into the Spider-Verse as Spider-Man 3 my ideal would be Andrew Garfield swinging in Tobey Maguire swinging yeah. in Doctor Strange standing there filtering them through dimensions and you could just the, the cameo potential at that point just goes Getting like goosebumps here right? so far <laughs> through the roof and yeah. just Tom Holland Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire and how how, how purely fun would that be? And I just cannot. Such a fun film. I can't imagine that it, no one would be there, you know, dick measuring, being like, my Spider Man was better, my Spider Man was better. Like, <laughs> you were all good in ways, all, guys. And just, all good. I, I just can't imagine. And, and I think they've also hinted at this with um, Mobius. And there was a shot of yeah. Michael Keaton and Jared Leto's Mobius trailer. Mm, there was. So I do think that we're going to start seeing this 
merging together of so many different properties, so many different timelines. And I'm, I'm just so here mm. for it. Basically, this is a long-winding way of saying yeah. it makes me excited for the future of the MCU when they're finding legitimate ways to lean into the strength of the comics mm. by opening the diversity of storylines that they doing can draw the, from. Doing the batshit stuff. Doing That's the batshit stuff. Yeah. They're going batshit, and I'm yeah. here for it. Just start swinging for the fences. And it's great. I, I did a deep wave, uh, deep dive, deep wave. <laughs> oh, <Matt>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> a deep dive with some friends over it and um, it, it's funny that the reason it, it seems like it's going to happen is it finally allows Sony to do their Sinister Six film because yes. if you get multiverse we already have Vulture Venom Mysterio Mysterio from Holland's universe then you have Electro and you could take a goblin, I guess, mm. um, and Lizard from uh, Andrew Garfield's. And then with Toby's, I'd love to see Melina and Defoe return mm. as Doc Ock. Oh, God. And may, I yeah. would Defoe coming back as uh, Green God Goblet. Godspeed, Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. Back to formula. <laughs> I say back to yeah. formula way too much for how old that reference is. <laughs> and people are just like, Finn, what are you, what are you talking, talking about? Back to formula? <laughs> But yeah, it, it allows Sony to finally pull off Sinister Six. I think that shows potential for side universes actually working. Like, you know, Spider-Man was already one of the most outstanding MCU films simply because it was Spider-Man happening in the MCU, but the MCU never really interfered. Like, they were there, yeah, yeah, but yeah. he happened. Whereas every other story was kind of bound by what was happening elsewhere. Exactly. Um, so it's exciting to see his universe actually get opened up like that. And um, WandaVision's going to start that all off with Disney+. Plus. And, so. and, and I mean, I, would, I don't want to get too down the hole of just talking through trailers that have come out. But, yes, WandaVision, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm pumped for that. It looks batshit. I love, I think, that MCU are doing the exact right thing of leaning into the madness. Mm. And uh, I think that's the only way that they're going to set up a phase four. I that just really realized, too, Catherine Hahn, I'm pretty sure she was Liv. And into the Spider-Verse. And she's also in WandaVision. Ah. Oh, God, I'd love her as live-action live Doc Ock. Hey, I, hey, man, it could happen. It could happen. But anyway, to move on from the news of the week to talk about some reviews mm. of the week. Look at that segue. Oh, my oh. God. My word. Haunting of Hill House, the haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, so the season two of Haunting of Hill House has dropped on Netflix now from mm. Mike Flanagan. Uh, so it is Mickey Flans. It's Mickey Flans. So Mickey Flans is executive producer. He directs the first episode and it sets the tone for the direction for the season. But I believe that's the only episode he directs okay. himself. And it's written by Mike Flanagan as well. It's, I am a huge Mike Flanagan fanboy. I, I was lucky enough to interview him in L.A. Uh, last year when he was uh, for Dr. Sleep. That's, that's when um, you and Ewan became that was great me, friends, That's right? when me and Ewan became best friends, yeah. yes. Uh, you may not have heard this story. <laughs> no, yeah, stuff, we definitely haven't heard the story. Um, but no, I, what I love about Mike Flanagan is that he mm. is a real purist in the horror genre. He clearly loves it. He's got such a strong eye for horror direction and composition. Yeah. He... He leans, he takes the best of the goofy camp parts of horror, the jump scares, the, 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 the parts that other horror directors might lean away from. But he takes mm. the, the purest moments from some kind of campy horror, but uses them in such, he never uses them in a cheap way. Mm. He takes cliches and polishes them and makes them shine. <laughs> like, so like the stabby violin, the he stabby, actually makes impactful. Yeah, exactly. He can, make, he can make a moment that would look very trite with another director mm. actually really land. And... I think my my I only got about five six minutes with 
them. So it wasn't it wasn't a long conversation. But he every time I threw any sort of horror reference at him, he he engaged with it and he loved it and threw it back at me with twice the force. Like yeah. so he's clearly so steeped in this genre <laughs> and he's just having such a great time with it. He just sleeps it. with spiders. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just so glad that he's getting these sort of projects uh, handed to him now. In terms of my thoughts on season two of Haunted Hell House, I would say. I'm only four episodes deep right now, so I can't do a, a conclusive review of the entire mm. season. What I'd say is that it, it, it's very much a pivot towards, uh, well, a further step towards, I should say, gothic horror melodrama yeah. than a really pure uh, haunting story like season one was. Now, remember, okay. these, these are both based off books. Haunting of Hill House is based off a book. Haunting of Bly Manor is loosely inspired by The Turning of the Screw, which is a very classic. No um, way, yeah. Very, a, a, a very, a hundreds of years, Victorian horror era story. horror yeah. story. One of the, one considered sort of one of the first horror stories. So that, the, the difference in source material definitely comes across in the, A, the aesthetics, the, the the, the the entire mood of the production of season two is very sort of Victorian gothic mm. melodrama. It almost gives me um, American Horror Story vibes occasionally. Yeah, like, even the um, production photos look the, like that. Yes. They're very rustic yellow yeah, tone. Very rustic yellow yeah. tone. The and also like American Horror Story, a lot of the cast from season one mm. have translated into season two. Oh as no well. way! Awesome. So now uh, I think her name is Neve. I'm sorry, I can't remember the actress's name off the top of my head. But the um, the girl who dies very early on in season one mm. and, and 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 kind of haunts the show as a ghost for yeah. most of season one is now the central character in season two the father um, takes on a completely different role whom I love oh. I don't want to spoil too much of him uh, and yes again it is much more melodramatic it's a story mm. of a girl who's hired to be a um, a nanny essentially to two wealthy privileged children who have lost their parents and they're now living in a large empty manor okay. and their absentee uncle who is very wealthy has essentially pays for them to live there but doesn't want to have anything to do with them and as our central character arrives mm. she forms a strong bond with the children but starts to feel this might be something off about the children there might be something off about the grounds and you can probably see where this is going if you haven't read The Turning of the Screw. It, it, it set up a lot of the haunting house <laughs> cliches that we yeah. now know and love. Uh, but again, I, I'm i having a really good time with it, but it's much more a sense of long, simmering dread and beautiful okay. composition, whereas Haunting of Hill House Season 1 had some genuine, real horror, like that real, that real deep chill yeah. sort of fear. Uh, a lot more jump scares. Urge mm. jump scares, not cheap. Like sometimes that's synonymous with something being cheap when people talk about jump scares. Uh, season one was more horrific, whereas season two so far has been a lot more chilling. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long, slow build of tension. Yeah. Still, a lot of supernatural elements come through, mm. it, but nothing as overtly horrific as season one, at least so far. Do you think that works in its favor, or? I mean, it, it really depends what you enjoy out of horror. If you mm. if you enjoy things like I mean, Crimson Peak's not a great example because I thought the film wasn't amazing, but that is <laughs> that is a comparison that I draw. Yeah. That very lavish production design. Uh, it is much stronger writing than something like Crimson Peak, but nice. extremely, really strong writing, very strong characters. I think the actors do a spectacular mm. job. I, I, I'm having a great time. The only thing I'd say is that I think if you were looking for that 
intricacy of plot that the season mm. one had, that seems to be missing so far at least. And again, this comes from a difference of source material. Okay. Season one had a almost sort of like a puzzle box aesthetic of mm. slowly unlocking all of these different perspectives. The, reveal. the reveals yeah. after reveal after reveal and all the different characters fitted together so beautifully and it kind of culminated in this amazing final episode. Uh, I don't feel that build up so far in season okay. two again because it's drawing a lot of inspiration from a very classic story. Mm. So therefore, the story beats feel a lot more familiar and well trodden. Yeah. It kind of feels like a very well done version of quite a familiar sort of tale. Again, want to stress only halfway through. It really could surprise I you like later it. on. That sounds but cool. They're, is, they're kind of slow burn. Slow burn. Creeping dread, beautifully produced, very well mm. acted. I just want Mike Flanagan to do a lot more stuff, and I'm yeah. and, I, and I and I hope this does very well for him, and that we may even get to see a season three. But yes, I would. Anyone who liked the first season, you will like this one, mm. whether or not you like it as much or less than the first season. It's kind of up you're to still debate. invested. You're still invested. It'll survive to season three, after which Netflix will cancel it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as, as Netflix has wanted mm. to do. Yeah, um, and it's. Just quickly touching on because we're we're on Netflix. Uh, I just want to say it's, it, it is unfortunate that Glow got cancelled after getting saved for a fourth season, and then COVID. Yeah, yeah unfortunate. But, but uh, what, what was it? I mean, I watched the first season of Glow, mm. liked it, sort of dipped my toes in the second season, didn't have an amazing time, and yeah. kind of bounced off it. Uh, I didn't invest a three, but I had friends who did, and they were looking forward to how four was going to wrap it all up. And um, but they but they said the way three ended, it, it's fine. It ended in a place where you're you're happy with how the characters ended up. So, but still, hey, to, it, it, it could yeah. be worse considering the cancellations. But that just we imagine made. getting saved and then suddenly, yeah, that's bleak. Ugh. That's bleak. <laughs> you're you're cancelled. But um, you know, uh, touching on things that that maybe maybe were saved because of Netflix or, or were saved because they appeared on multiple networks. Shit's Creek. I'm going to touch on Shit's Creek. Yeah, you're going to touch the shit. Uh, okay, well, full disclosure, I've been, I've gotten a bit of shit myself over mm. some sla- some shade that I've thrown at Shit's Creek in this office. So I'm really glad that you're here because Kate and I were talking about how we were sort of underwhelmed by Shit's Creek. Well, she likes it, but I just mm. didn't understand the acclaim that it was getting at all. So could yeah. you... Could you explain it to me? Could you explain yeah. why shit's... Could you give me your pitch for Shit's Creek? So I'm only, I think I'm one and a half seasons through, so I'm almost finished season two now. Um, season one. I, 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 Season one was definitely one of those seasons that people talk about where they say, it's such a hard slog that I couldn't get invested. And that's what season one felt like. Right. Um, it's not until you actually see how those pieces start to get picked back up in season two that it all starts to come together. And and what I'm enjoying is it's this tale of people becoming better versions of themselves. It's just you don't see that at the Boo, start at all. Self-improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to self-improve themselves in 2020? Gross. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Because, you know, I had friends who were just like, Shit's Creek is the greatest stuff on television. And I loved all the, you know, the the memes and the videos that went viral from it. And, of course, the messages that the show um, was delivering in regards to gender and sexuality. Um, it's also positive that <laughs> when I was feeling that, that, that slow drawl of season one, I was like, am I going to make this all the way to season six? Uh, thankfully with season two it's saved and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that all wraps up especially with the clean out at the Emmys mm. <sighs> no, again, that, that's what I don't get I every time that I've dipped my toes into Shit's Creek my, my girlfriend's mm. watching it currently and I've dipped my toes in here and there you dipped your toes in shits yeah. I've dipped my toes in the, look we're not mature we take our laughs when we can get we're a couple of wines deep at midday yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it's the wine um, it, it just it just struck me as a, a it, it seemed like a sitcom made 10 years ago mm. it had a little 
amazing. A lot more sort of classic setup, slightly goofy, almost not pantomime is a strong word, yeah. but veering in that direction. Mm. The comedy felt like something that was written maybe a decade ago. And again, yeah. that, I, I'm, I'm not... because Eugene Levy's in it? Like, possibly, you look at him yeah. and Catherine O'Hara and you're like, am I watching one of those Spinal Tap films? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I and I, I guess I just, I, I never felt that that, that a particular mm. spice or, or sharpness to the writing. Like, where something like 30 Rock, when I first watched that, yeah. kind of rocked me back on my heels a little bit because I wasn't ready for that kind of pace of comedy. <laughs> like, just banger yeah. after banger after banger of just someone at the top of the game mm. throwing comedy at my face. That writing room was powerful. Right? That probably the writing room for yeah. me. And so whereas so I sort of understood the critical acclaim that 30 got yeah. away and which it's great. I was like, this is fine, this is fun, is it I like it. Everyone's maybe, doing a good job. Like you're racist towards Canadians. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. My dark secret's being unveiled. Yeah. Yeah. I know they get love yeah. all around the world, but I don't trust them. That Prime maple. Minister guy Justin Watts' face. Yes, I don't I don't trust them. They're fucking maple syrup motherfucker. <laughs> Look, that was that was that was a low blow. I'm sorry, Ken. <laughs> it was the, we love you, the it, bigger version of us. It's, it's telling that the, the worst thing I could think about to say about Canada was you maple syrup, motherfucker. Well, so that's and, it. Like, that's weird because they have the greatest maple syrup in the world, apparently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It shows how much I know about Canada as well. <laughs> we maple syrup. You're all really nice. Yeah, ah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Damn you. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jordan Tenney. But before we finish off mm. today, I just want to do a little retro review because Ooh. I there's something that has had... Okay. You know how... For a while, everywhere mm. you went, someone was trying to tell you to watch either Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, depending on what time frame you were in. <laughs> the other show like yeah. that, except for The Sopranos probably, is The Wire. Mm. It's the show that it is consistently held up as some of the greatest television ever made. And I'd been resisting watching it for a long time just because of that reflexive thing that happens when too many people tell you to watch something, you kind of cross your arms at it a little bit. You become a hipster. <laughs> you, become, you become a hipster. Like, it reminds me of, um, there's, there's a story there about Jerry Seinfeld where a comedian talks about how they opened for Jerry Seinfeld once and finished their set and then said, and now welcome to the stage, the funniest man on the planet right now, Jerry Seinfeld. Mm. And then after the show, Jerry Seinfeld walked up to him and was really furious and went, never, ever, ever introduce me that way again and yeah. he was like well, what do you mean and he goes the moment you say that to an audience they're all gonna go oh okay funniest man eh? make me laugh funny guy I don't yeah. wanna be told let, to the funniest man on the planet let me see your joke let me see exactly and he was like the moment you do that you will yeah. start out on the worst ground with the audience and I kind of feel that's true of a lot of creative endeavors. The moment someone says, this is the best thing ever, you come to it with your arms crossed, being like, yeah. all right, try and impress me. I'm looking for flaws. I don't want to be one of the sheep that just love things that people tell them. <laughs> but anyway, so all of that context in mind, I have been having a, a, an exceptional time. I mean, one full disclosure, it, this is a show for anyone that doesn't know. It's set in Baltimore. Each season follows uh, the same unit of detectives as they or police, I should say, across the whole police force, bringing in more and more uh, elements of the criminal justice system as time goes on. And not just the criminal justice system, but the city as a whole. So, for example, the first season follows narcotics and homicide detectives chasing down one specific crime syndicate. And what I like about it is that a lot of cop shows go either season to season or even episode by episode. It's the crime of the week. And then we culminate, yeah. we catch the bad guy, and then we move on to the next crime of the week. What I like about The Wire so far is that 
when I think one of the things that sets it apart from other shows of the ilk is that it shows how messy and interconnected the vast machinery of criminal justice mm. is and the real complexity of it. So all five seasons of The Wire essentially follow the same sprawling criminal case that starts from episode one, season one, they're investigating one drug kingpin, and then all these spider webs that just branching off from this one case they need to try get a what's called they need to get authority for a wiretap they need mm. to bring in this judge they bring in that judge but then he's up for re-election so he doesn't want to necessarily give him that wiretap then there's some cops on the unit that might have been taking some dodgy money and then it follows how hugely interconnected one case can be considering the way that how inherently corrupt a lot of the justice system is in America. Yeah. So it's a way of justifying each new character that comes in has some kind of spiderweb link tangential uh, attachment to that original case. And it just gives every, it gives you this broad perspective on how so many cop shows have this black and white view of uh, in the first hour, where the, the first minute of the hour, we, uh, we, we've... Standard morality. Standard morality, yeah. Mm. It's this black and white view of morality. It, it spends just as much time with the criminals as it does with the cops, and it shows... It gives a real humanity to all the criminals while still having all of the fun of Idris Elba as the central villain <laughs> yeah. for a lot of the first seasons. And it gives it, it, it has all of the fun of cops versus criminals, but gives them an incredible depth of, you know, not just a black and white view of either. Mm. And it shows the, the true complexity of the justice system, showing, yes, you might want to get something. You, 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 do you just chase the low-level arrests? Do you go for the higher person? But if yeah. you go for the higher person and you start chasing the money, you're going to get in trouble because it's going to bring in all these politicians. So season one follows the narcotics and the homicide division. Season two follows the ports because it's like, okay, well, where do the drugs come from? They come from the ports. A lot of people get paid off at the ports, and mm. that's the way the drugs enter the country. Season three brings in the politicians, and it's like, well, the reason these guys didn't get caught is because some of these politicians have been paid off. Wow. Season four follows the schools, and it's where it filters right down. Where do these gangs sell their drugs? Mm. What, what, who do these gangs go to first to sell their drugs? They go to kids because they can't be charged as adults. Yeah. So all these 12 and 13-year-olds getting pulled in, pulled in from the ghettos. But it's not like each season ignores the previous one and just focuses mm. on this new area. It goes, all those characters that you know from one and two slowly build up into this massive roster of characters that you understand and care about. Yeah. It shows all the connections between them. So for a character that's very high up in the political strata in season three has this connection because he paid off someone from the ports in season two. So you slowly start building this like murder wall string it's on like your conspiracy. Pip, yeah, the Pepe Silva. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so th that I think it, it, it does in a way, it, these interlocking narratives and the whole the complexity of it in a way that I don't think any other cop show I've ever seen mm. does. Other, the other thing I wanted to shout out was... Um, Omar, little Omar, who is a character yeah. that has become famous in pop culture, played by, I just want to double check the guy's yes, Michael K. Williams, who was Chalky White mm -hmm. in uh, Boardwalk Empire. Empire. I, I, I've i seen memes of Omar. Mm. I, I never really understood the, the draw of the character since I hadn't watched the show. But my God, he is a perfect, he is a perfect <laughs> character. He yeah. plays a stick-up boy who is basically a, a guy who robs drug dealers. And he, So in a way, you could say it's a bit of a cliche. He's kind of this like thuggish criminal with a heart of gold. Like, <laughs> like a Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Boy, he steals from the rich but never gives from the poor. Yeah. He's like a half Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so he played, and this was made in the early 2000s, so this mm. was a bit more of a bold choice than it perhaps would be now. But he's a gay black 
late twenties stick up boy. And that they show and they show full on doll, yeah. which I like. They a lot of male nudity, a lot of gay sex, yeah. but they they show the grittiness of his character, not just in the sexuality scenes, but the he's he's slick, he's charming, he's mm. fascinating, he's frightening. Uh, and he becomes quite of a central part of the narrative overall. But just it, it's worth it just for every scene that he steals because Michael K. Williams has gone on to be in a huge amount of stuff, Lovecraft yeah. Country. Um, community. Community. <laughs> he's he's in everything, and I can see why he became yeah. such a star. And you, you just know him. When you yeah. see him, you're like, oh, it's that guy. He's so yeah. good at charming menace, you know, just yeah. a simmering sense of danger. Uh, but yes, The Wire, I'm, I get it. I get it now. Mm. I get why people love it. So if anyone hasn't seen it and they're kind of, uh, you know, tossing up whether it's actually worth diving in, it's on Neon yep. every season. Just do it. It's, it's, just it's, binge it's, it. There's your new binge, folks. There's your new binge. Just watch The Wire. It'll take up at least a couple of weeks of your time. And by then, the election's going to be over. <laughs> and we will never have to talk about <laughs> it for another three And will years. finally be sane again. I'll finally be sane. Guys, yeah. it's, been a, it's been a time. Okay? He has been politicking. I've been, politics has been politicking. As yeah. you know, my day job's working as a political reporter. And God, it's, it's enough. It's enough now. But please vote. But please vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sick of the election, but also please vote. That's a, probably a good note to end on. Please go out after mm. you finish this podcast and vote if you have not done so. Uh, keep your ears peeled. Do you do that? Do you keep your ears peeled? Well, I've yeah, said it now. Not? Next week, we're going to have a, a bumper of a show for you for all the nerds in the audience. We'll be doing a Nerds Hub special talking everything Ooh. gaming. It's going to drop on Friday because perhaps some embargoes might lift on Friday and we can talk about Ooh, some like stuff embargoes. that we have not been able to mm. talk about yet, but there's been some very cool stuff floating around the newsroom and we will have some exclusive stuff to talk to you about then. Uh, we will also have some more exclusive content coming from the post-credits end of things, which I cannot yet describe to you, but I promise is going to be exceptionally exciting landing week after next on the 21st. But until that time, Jordan Tinney, thank you for being here. Thank you, Finn Hogan. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, dear listener. Thank you, Sam Harvey, for allowing this podcast to exist in the first place. We will see you again next week. 